Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director. And welcome to 2020. We have our full panel, which means Robert Craig is with us. Robert is the Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Happy New Year, everyone. And our new full-time guest panelist who's been filling in for now <laughs> almost two months now, Claire Zaki, our healthcare organize our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. Claire, good to see you. Welcome to 2020. Thank you. So she, she's just like Tony Evers' cabinet secretaries. They're all acting. There we go. Not no, confirmed a, I, by the Republican Senate. So <gasps> look, I did not say that actually. Uh, so obviously Rebecca Lynch remains on hiatus from the show, and Claire will continue to perform admirably. We we love her healthcare insights. Uh, but let's get into 2020. Uh, we did not have a show last week. Um, so this show will be a mixture of a little bit of looking back at uh, 2019, also looking forward uh, on both the presidential uh, primary that's in full contest. And uh, we'll look here in state at Governor Evers and the state legislature. Um, but there are a couple of issues we want to talk about that are uh, breaking. One continues to be uh, the election commission and the voter purge. We'll talk more about that. Uh, we're also going to talk about the legalization of marijuana in Illinois and yesterday, uh, New Year's Day, uh, that legalization started and its impact here in Wisconsin. So we'll talk more about that. But let's get started talking about what's been going on in our state, particularly this broke. We talked about it on the last podcast, um, the effort uh, by conservative groups, and let's be honest, Republicans broadly, including uh, clearly judicial Republicans, to purge and remove over 200,000 voters from the rolls. And just to remind folks, since I know we've been all off eating far too much bad food and maybe can't remember uh, the history of this, essentially um, what happened is the state flags uh, people who have moved, potentially, uh, that files our rolls show that they've either given us new addresses for DMV or other areas and that they potentially could have moved. And so the state found, uh, I think it's around 280,000 or certainly over 200,000 folks who met this criteria. And they were sent um, last year in fall, sent letters essentially letting them know. Um, and as of then December 17th, I believe, a judge ruled that the election commission needed to actually purge these voters uh, from the rolls, even though we know there's good evidence that many of these voters have not indeed moved and we just have data error. The latest news while we were gone is the election commission again this week on, wet, on Monday uh, deadlocked, 3-3, that no action is going to be taken uh, because of the deadlock uh, to remove the voters until... Uh, we have further court rulings of the appeals. And the latest news <laughs> this morning, Thursday, we record on the 2nd, um, the conservative group Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty is uh, announced that it is going to ask the circuit court to essentially hold the election commission in contempt uh, because they are not following through on this Ozaki County judge's order on December 17th to purge the voters. So... I want to get both of your uh, thoughts to this, uh, but then obviously this is likely setting up where this may even just skip in a, an appeals court and go straight to the Supreme Court since this is so highly political and we know our Supreme Court is extremely political. This has clearly been set up 
to run through the courts and purge voters. Claire, want to get your thoughts on this? Um, obviously, happy uh, welcome to the new year. Nothing's changed. <laughs> new new decade, old problems. Same tactics. <laughs> um, I have a lot of thoughts on this, and the first one is that I totally agree that I think this issue is not going to stop at the current level. I, I agree that it'll likely continue through the courts. Um, and I also, th my, I'm not a lawyer, but my impression <laughs> is that I'm very, it is, it is not uncommon for um, decisions to, or, or the consequences of decisions to not be carried out while an issue continues to be litigated. Um, or at least make its way, you know, through the appeals process. Um, so I think it is totally reasonable and defendable in, in my completely civilian mind um, that this voter purge would actually be, would be put on hiatus um, while the while the case continued to go through the courts. Um, so so I, to me, as just a regular citizen, it seems defendable. Um, there's a quote from. Um, one of the uh, Democratic representatives, um, was it Ann Jacobs, who's on the... Yes, um, Yep, who's on correct. there, who, who is a lawyer yep. <laughs> um, um, from the commission and who says that she also believes that they're not being held in contempt of court because the judge didn't give them a deadline by which they had to do this um, sort of voter purge or carry it out. Um, so to me, I think it's reasonable. Um, and, and I hope <laughs> um, for, um, you know, pragmatic reasons that they are able to keep this process going for as long as possible so that um, we can, for as, at least through as many elections as possible, sort of avoid this inevitability of people being disenfranchised by politics and courts. Robert? Well, over break, we had a uh, recording surface of a Republican uh, consultant uh, briefing Republicans in Madison and saying that a key part of the Republican election strategy is voter suppression. And this is further evidence of that. And there's also been a long-term strategy, which has been especially effective in Wisconsin, to create right-wing courts that will simply rubber stamp what Republicans want so they can hold power. So if you think about this decision, uh, first of all, and I'm not a lawyer either, but first of all, it's my understanding, talking to the two of the Democratic election commissioners, that there is no part of the Wisconsin law that says they must be purged in 30 days, okay? This was invented by the judge. Number two, it is very common when there's an adverse decision not to immediately enforce it unless there's an exigent circumstance where there's damage that's going to be done. There are no elections taking place. There are no allegedly illegal votes. And of course, there's no real case that this is preventing illegal votes. But the point being that the, it shows the political nature of this judge that he ordered it be done immediately. Yeah. And then, of course, there's another element here uh, that if, it's, if you dig deeper behind the headlines, that is apparently the law is only about people moving between jurisdictions, not within them. And a very large number of the people who would be purged, say in Milwaukee, are moving within a jurisdiction. Of course, a lot of those folks are people of color that Republicans, it's very clear, would prefer not have a right to vote. Yeah, I just want to get back to this, the, the idea that somehow what is the harm that's being caused by not doing the purge, right? This notion that somehow we need clean data lists, that that's a greater priority than possibly removing someone's fundamental right to vote because because of data. And I, I want to say this idea that you send in today's modern age a letter via the post office to their house, right? I got to tell you, 
I mean, I'm not the model for how I handle my mail per se, but a lot of us now write our bills and our mail. It's all automated. And so opening up your mail may not be the, you know, we may get behind. I've, I do. We have a stack at our house that sometimes gets lost, and I could totally see how I could miss uh, some sort of official kind of innocuous-looking government thing or get anything and then have me be purged because somehow they need some you know, the greater good of clean voter files. It's, it just seems ridiculous, especially since Robert, you pointed out, there's been no actual proof that there's voter fraud happening because maybe we have extra people on the rolls. Claire. Yes. Again, I have so many thoughts in my head. It's hard to decide which one is the most important. Um, but I'll say to your point about notifying people by mail, if, if this concern pans out, which I think it, it very likely will, um, that a lot of the folks who are identified as, you know, their registration needing to be purged from the rolls, um, is if a lot of those are, are data errors, for example, then think about how many of those addresses might come back by at that person is actually lives at the same address that they've been registered at for a while, for example, but because it, there's a typo or a weird data merge in some database somewhere, right, that their address gets misprinted and then they don't get their letter because it bounces back or it gets returned to the sender. I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong with notifying people this way. I want to just point out one other th interesting point here. Why is it that everything is supposedly handled at the local municipal level and they're entrusted to run these 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 elections but then somehow the state right like you love how the state comes in and asserts authority over this when quite frankly a lot of these municipalities there ought to be a conversation about how best to go about this and it may be very different from municipality and municipality robert yeah and we know that there's a seven percent error rate in these so it is very interesting, the balancing here, that in order to prevent some alleged harm, right, we have to knowingly remove, uh, you know, 7% of people who have not moved at all and create another barrier to voting. We don't have enough voting in this society. We have am among the lowest voter turnout of the entire advanced industrial world, and we have a party dedicated to limiting voting. So the problem is, with these right-wing judges, that the only way to solve this problem is to win and and create and create and actually start moving towards enfranchising more people, which we were doing in the '60s and '70s. But now, with the right wing, you know, ascendancy, we we have a we have a return to a new kind of Jim Crow. Uh, I want to take a moment to tie this to one of the campaigns that Citizen Action of Wisconsin leads um, and, that, and that I'm working on, um, which is our uh, campaign about support for caregivers. And um, uh, maybe I can dive into this after the break a little bit because I know we're yeah, coming absolutely. up on the need for it. We're, we're going to do that. And also when we come back after this break, we're going to talk about uh, the legalization of marijuana in Illinois and that taking effect uh, this week. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action, and welcome back to uh, our show, and welcome to 2020. We'll see you after this break. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are talking about the voter purge uh, that is 
likely going to occur after <laughs> this probably heads up to the uh, very political and partisan Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Claire, you were going to, before we went to break, talk about how this in particular uh, has an impact on caregivers. Yes. So uh, our national partner in our work to support caregivers, um, both uh, paid and unpaid caregivers, is an organization called Caring Across Generations. And Caring Across recently partnered with the Women's Alzheimer's Movement to do a poll um, of um, Americans and in particular family caregivers to talk about um, their um, needs as caregivers and also to find out how people um, think about uh, and cope with uh, Alzheimer's. And one of the things that the poll found was that the demands of caregiving responsibilities impede people's uh, ability to engage civically. So the poll found that um, specifically due to caregiver responsibilities, 36% of family caregivers have a hard time keeping up with news and current events. 33 found they were not feeling informed enough about candidates or issues to vote. And 20%, so one in five, um, indicated that they had not voted because of caregiving responsibilities specifically. And we also, um, so when I pair that thinking with the fact that um, family caregivers in particular tend to be um, women um, and that um, women are more likely to be affected by Alzheimer's than men as well, um, um, according to um, some science that I read in the same article about this poll. <laughs> um, that, um, and that um, paid caregivers, um, people who do it um, professionally um, as their, as their full-time job, um, also tend to, are more likely to be women, um, people of color, and immigrants. I think it shows that um, these are people who need more support in order to, to vote, yes. um, not, um, not to um, have more burdens placed in their way in order to engage civically. And so things like the voter purge um, in Wisconsin and other states where this has happened um, disproportionately affects people um, who are caregivers. Yep. And uh, like these are folks who need society's support um, just as much, if not more, than many other segments of society, just by sort of nature of who they are and also because of the work that they perform. Uh, so I, I wanted to tie these two issues together because I think, um, you know, people talk about the strains of caregiving a lot, but, but people don't really talk about um, the effects it has on their civic engagement. Well, I think this is great because it, it puts a face also on, like, who are some of the folks who will be more disproportionately impacted by a purge yeah. like this, right? Folks that we know are, are financially also on the margins mm -hmm. of society, but also caregivers, where they live sometimes, mm -hmm. especially if it's taking care of families, we're talking about mobile folks, right? So more yeah. likely to get caught up. So that, that was very useful to like help us understand, put a face on some of the people who are doing really critical work. Yeah. Imagine how devastating it would be to, you know, you find, you get somebody to watch for half an hour, the person that you're, that you're caring for, which is probably a challenge anyways, because, you know, if you don't know if they have, you know, dementia or a physical um, uh, disability or something, right? That you need to have somebody who understands that person and their needs to take over. And then you show up at the polls and then they tell you you aren't actually registered and it's going to take you another 30 minutes to get registered. And you're like, I can't. I got I to gotta get back to the person I'm caring for. Claire, and, and you have to leave without voting. It's I devastating. I have actually participated in 
same day, you know, getting people to the polls where we do rides, and I've taken caregivers who are bringing their client with them because they yeah. can't leave the client at home, and that person has come with us to the polls. So one or the other could vote, right? Which is a very interesting in that, Indeed. right? Had that service not been available, it just shows what you're pointing out, how tenuous their ability to participate is, and anything that fractures that. Yeah. Is unnecessarily going yeah. to. We should be remove. We should be removing barriers yes. for these people to participate in in our society, not putting new ones up. And with that, we need to spend a few minutes before we go to break, bringing up the point that marijuana is now legal, and not just medicinal, right? Just the full recreational use. There's a whole bunch of restrictions and other things, but the main point is um, Wisconsin is going to increasingly be an island as other states, uh, I think Michigan also went to full legalization, uh, uh, and it's going to happen in other states. And we remain very backwards all this past year. We couldn't, we can't even get medical marijuana through our legislature, uh, in spite of knowing that we have broad, widespread support for full legalization here in the state. And yesterday was just this was on display in full news coverage. All the border state dispensaries had lines that snaked out three hours long at 6 a.m. for opening, right? And you know, it's a was a cross section. It was literally America's diversity on display, by the way, <laughs> outside of these. If you saw any of the news coverage in terms of every person of every kind of walk of life and all political persuasions was out there and just further reminding us how idiotic it is that we have not moved full legalization and tapped into the the financial windfall that comes from this uh, at a time when we know our schools and a whole bunch of other things could use the kind of resources. Not to mention, Robert, we've talked about moving towards, uh, you know, a 21st century uh, 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 energy policy, right? The kind of resources we could put into these kinds of efforts. Uh, Robert, your thoughts uh, on uh, Legalize It Day in Illinois? Yeah, there, it, it was such a big deal the day before. They were talking about it on sports radio, which uh, avoids all political topics yeah. for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, so it's a huge deal, and it's embarrassing that Illinois is is acting in a far more progressive way, not just this issue, but down the line than Wisconsin. Traditionally, Wisconsin was more the progressive bastion, and Illinois the seat of corruption, you know, as far as narrative goes. And so this is embarrassing, and literally this state is being strangled uh, by, the, by the far right, by the right-wing Republican Party. It's a very right-wing Republican Party with what we call a moderate is not in a lot of other Republican parties around the state. There are a lot more. You have a lot of red states where there are Republicans with Medicaid expansion. Not here, right? Mm -hmm. And so and this really does have to do with the history of the white flight suburbs uh, around Milwaukee, uh, the, the Wow counties, and uh, literally they have been especially vehement and reactionary. It have been the heart of the Republican Party in Wisconsin, and so we're seeing that. We don't have high-speed rail. We don't have commuter rail from Chicago that we could have had. We don't have Medicaid expansion, let alone the other advances we need in health care, and now, of course, we're continuing to act like we're living in the 1950s as, as far as 
as drug policy mm-hmm. by criminalizing marijuana when other states are, are, are both legalizing it and deriving revenue from it as a regulated, safer product when it's regulated and sold legally. So, Claire, I want to get your thoughts. I don't know if you had a chance to see the Racine Journal Times editorial. It was straight out of the 1950s, reefer madness kind of scare tactics. I'm not going to ask you to respond <laughs> on it, but it had things like uh, talking about how dangerous and scary it was. Uh, which is just like, really, you're so out of touch with the people. Claire, your thoughts on on this, and in particular also as it relates to Wisconsin. Yeah, you know, I saw a comment from, I think it was uh, Senator Scott Fitzgerald, um, when he when um, medical marijuana legislation, uh, both Republican and bipartisan, um, was introduced in late 2019, um, and he said something like, um, "Like we just think that this shouldn't happen here because in other states there have been um, that have legalized marijuana, there have been increases in um, accidents from um, intoxicated or under the influence drivers." To which I'm like, I mean, okay, we're talking about. Wisconsin, where we are already like a leader um, in bad ways when it comes to alcohol consumption and um, alcohol-related accidents. Um, And so to say, and so to pretend like we have some great record on this front that needs to be protected, I think is disingenuous, right? Because if that's something we were really concerned about, um, I, I think, you know, we, there, there's action that we could be taking, right? Um, and, and, so I, I thought that was a weird argument for him to make, right? Um, yeah, the Tavern League in this state is one of the mo- more powerful lobbying organizations. And so, like, the notion that somehow there's great fear when we lose people on our roads all the time yeah. over this. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that we should be taking seriously in the status quo and not pretend like it doesn't exist and and that we have some great record that marijuana will hurt. Um but anyways, so so I so I do I agree that um, that marijuana is kind of a boogeyman sometimes to folks, um, and and that's just disingenuous to me. So, uh, so I I have a I want to pose a question. We have a minute yeah. left in the show. I um, it's going to happen, right? Like we will legalize here. Um, any thoughts as to which Republican who's going to be the leader who's going to stand up and start to push this issue on the Republican side. They've got to the polling numbers. Again, this is over 60% support in the state for full legalization. Who's any any picks? Who would be the Republican to st- stand up and, and do this? I, and maybe it's one who hasn't been elected I yet. Question and your, we'll get elected on this. I question your premise. <laughs> well, how, how popular are gun safety measures? Yeah, in yeah. other words, the, the, the link between polling and policy is not there unless there are voters who will literally vote against a candidate who would otherwise vote for them on an issue. That's and that's a, not a point in evidence. That's a great question, and we may have some work and some uh, election-related work around figuring out that question. Claire? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I think um, I, I have been pleasantly surprised with the, with the number of folks um, who've come up, met Republicans who've come out in support of medical marijuana, like, um, like Teston and Bernier, um, for example, on the Senate side. Um, but I'll have to give it some more thought for the full legalization. Well, I think you named it. I think Teston is probably the one most likely, and that's because uh, he's already ahead of the curve on this and is connected to the economic, uh, the business aspect of the community, so is probably going to feel a lot of pressure. But anyways, we'll talk more about this because it is it remains just kind of ridiculous and a huge loss for the state in terms of the kind of investments we could be making. But with that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenaction.org.
Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action, and welcome to 2020. We're glad you could take the time to join us and listen. And uh, we know 2020 is going to be a huge year uh, politically, and we're going to spend some time talking about the federal and presidential aspect of the 2020 election. Uh, today, Senator, excuse me, uh, uh, Julian Castro. He's the former housing secretary and uh, mayor of San Antonio, and he was the only Latino candidate in the race, has officially stepped out of the Democratic presidential primary. Um, and that, of course, continues a trend that we've seen where a number of uh, uh, minority candidates, people of color candidates, have not only dropped out or aren't on the debate stage. Um, and so want to talk more about not only just any thoughts people have about uh, Castro's uh, leaving. And then I do want to point out Castro was one of the three finalists in the People's Action presidential process. And a lot of that had to do with um, his a lot of his visionary positions, particularly around immigration and mass incarceration and a number of other important issues. So he was very noteworthy in that respect and proved to be um, actually a very good campaigner, even if he did not get traction in the polls. So with that, I want to just, um, Claire, get your initial thoughts on anything about uh, uh, Castro dropping out, but then more broadly, just sort of where this leaves us at the state of uh, the presidential primary with 14 Democrats left. Claire? I think that Julian Castro brought a lot to this um, presidential race. Uh, I think he brought a point of view and raised um, issues, particularly issues that affect um, the Latinx community, um, Spanish-speaking communities, and um, helped us keep some focus on the tragedy that's occurring on the border um, and, and the need for significant uh, immigration reform. And, and that voice will be missed in this campaign. Uh, he certainly was more than that. I don't want to say that all, you know, he only mattered um, because of, uh, you know, his ethnicity or something. Sure. Um, uh, Cause he also talked a lot about um, poverty um, and other issues that I care a lot about. Um, but in particular, uh, you know, his voice um, and his presence did um, a lot to helping people talk about these issues. And I understand that once you don't make it on the debate stage anymore, it makes it, Hard, a lot harder for you to, to you know, keep those issues alive, even in discussion um, in the race. So I, I understand why he would drop out. Um, but yeah, he'll, he'll be missed by me in this debate. Yep. Robert? And yeah, he, he, a lot of times people run for president not to win the presidency, but to shape a debate, to set up the next stage, to set themselves up as a spokesperson for future things, maybe eventually to become elected president. Look at Biden. He started running for president in 1988. Pretty right? embarrassing ending to that. Playing the long too. game. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Castro is a relatively young man, and by the terms of presidential candidates and U.S. setters, where you're young until you're 70, apparently, uh, but he is 47 years old. Uh, it does raise a question, and it was raised in a lot of the media coverage, is what does this say about uh, diversity in the Democratic Party. This is the most diverse party, the only major diverse party in the United States. And in fact, uh, the white vote has not been won by Democratic presidential nominees since 1964, since Lyndon Baines Johnson. And so it depends upon those voters and having an all-white and skewing older state debate stage now, aside from uh, Andrew Yang, who is his own kind of special unicorn. Uh, and so the thing of it is, that 
it's problematic, but there are enough African American and and Latinx voters to have made Booker, Harris, and Castro more viable candidates, and they are not lining up behind those candidates. I mean, most black voters are still behind Joe Biden. And so it's important to look not just to who's on the stage, but where those voters are. And there are fascinating things. I better understand why uh, Harris and Booker were very imperfect vehicles and were not going to galvanize not only black voters, but African-American office holders, right? It's not like the whole Congressional Black Caucus was all behind uh, Booker and Harris, quite the contrary, right? And so I know less about, I mean, Castro definitely... Uh, more than Harris and Booker, quite frankly, gained a ton of support from activist groups, social justice groups that are that that uh, in, in the Latino community, but it did not translate into mass voter support. And of course, there is a problem with the uh, the way the primary system is set up, leading with two relatively undiverse states, Iowa and New Hampshire. And so Democratic parties have to look at this more carefully, but it's more complicated than saying we just have to keep these particular candidates in the race because they're people of color, even if they have not caught uh, get a traction even within their own communities. I'll also add that something I liked about um, uh, Castro's race is that um, in addition to um, people, and to Robert's uh, point that sometimes people run because they want to advance certain issues, um, I think that's true. I think there are also people who run because they really like being the center of attention and and they really like the ego boost that you get from running Mm -hmm. for president. Um, And I never felt that way about Castro. I felt like he was always a super authentic and genuine person that um, he, he really did care as much as he purported um, and and that there was no uh, artifice there um, I think he showed us who he was and that um, you know you could disagree with him on you know minutiae of points here or there but but he was himself and he was authentic and I think at a time when um, we have so much authenticity from um, elected officials right like Donald Trump for example um, although I mean he is genuinely who he is I don't want to say that right um, but um, <laughs> like, uh, yes. like he showed us who he is right to a fault <laughs> to a fault um, but yeah but but I mean um, but I, I think he's also somebody who who just like cares deeply about what like white nationalists for example think about him and and will will say whatever he sort of needs to say pop- popular sometimes right and, and I think that Julian Castro was um, was who he really was to us, and that that person was somebody who cares. It raises an interesting question about Castro and uh, your reflection on his authenticity, which is was even a bigger problem for Booker and Harris, and that is the contrast between the way he campaigned and what he did during the Obama years. There was one, in other words, he was uh, carrying water for a very neoliberal centrist administration that was not bold on most issues. And uh, it was interesting that Biden actually chided him on the debate stage a couple times by saying, well, I don't remember you saying that in cabinet meetings. In other words, you didn't stand up either when Obama was becoming uh, um, the uh, deporter-in-chief, for example, as his theory of how he was going to get a, a grand immigration deal with Republicans, which never came. And so, but this happens. I mean, in FDR and LBJ, Governed differently than their previous careers and how they campaign. So I think you're probably right that this was the more authentic Castro, but it becomes a political liability when you don't have a history of uh, through your whole career reflecting that. But now he's probably rebranded himself for future campaigns. Yeah, I want to <clears throat> I want to underscore this, and I'm very disappointed to see Castro leave. I actually think of 
um, what you talked about, his past is 100% accurate. And I think of all of the candidates, he moved the most from who he was in terms of how he as a young person got into the political establishment to hopefully go do big things. And I do believe um, he distinguished himself in a way many other candidates didn't. And I want to talk about it before we close. And we've been talking about it here in People's Action uh, and Citizen Action around co-governing and the idea that like, if we are going to achieve big things as a movement, a political movement, the organizations and the groups and the leaders who are helping lead that on the ground need to be in relation with elected officials who want to achieve that agenda. And I think uh, Julian Castro really understood that and showed a, a huge learning curve in this process in engaging with people's groups. I know whether it be the uh, uh, Center on Popular Democracy, Working Families, or People's Action, and a lot of other people's in movement groups, unions, he has really spent a lot of time. He participated in all of our processes. He actually went to an ICE det uh, detention uh, hearing with one of our sister groups in Iowa and got that person who led some of the refugee uh, migrant uh, uh, marches released. Um, so he did some uh, powerful things that showed an evolution, I think, from what Robert said in terms of what may have been his Obama administration. I just don't think maybe the voters were necessarily uh, that he had enough resources and everything to get that message out. And he also had the misfortune of you do have the Sanders-Warren uh, phenomenon of extraordinary, I would describe it as economic left uh, analysis that I think has galvanized a lot of progressives who have been looking for that message and probably just sort of kept Julian sort of out of that conversation. And, and his history probably also in the Obama administration may have kept him out. But I just think going forward, this is someone to keep an eye on um, who really distinguished himself. And by the way, uh, Beto O'Rourke, probably uh, was KO'd by him in the debates and exposed oh, yeah. to be a fraud on a I, lot of these issues. And he deserves a <laughs> tremendous amount of credit for that. So I would just add this, because activist progressives, like the ones that listened to Battleground Wisconsin, assume people are looking at all these candidates. Very few raise enough money to get critical mass to be considered by most voters. And I would say the only person of color who achieved that status in this cycle was Kamala Harris, and her crash and burn is distinct. I, th I don't think Booker or Castro or even Yang have actually become a, an option for most voters. They've just been known mostly by activists. Yang doing a little better, but it's still too narrow a, a constituency for him to become a, a front runner. And with that... We have to take a break here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. When we come back, we are going to take a look at uh, the state and uh, both our governor and uh, uh, both 2019, but also looking forward to 2020. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Um, we want to spend uh, this last segment just sort of reflecting on 2019, but also looking forward and um, we're going to start by a conversation about our governor, because that was the major, huge difference politically here in this state. I mean, obviously, um, uh, Attorney General Josh Call, that's a huge thing. But having a governor was going to be a major difference in terms of um, how we governed here in the state. And um, uh, shout out to the Wisconsin Examiner, who, by the way, is looking for a journalist if you want to get a job working for a kick-butt uh, journalism operation. You should uh, get your resume in. But they had a great, very long and interesting article with Governor Tony Evers, him reflecting. And um, I 
going to encourage you all to read it, but just in summary, and I want to get everyone's response, essentially says, like, look, this was incredibly challenging. I wouldn't change much of anything. I feel like I did the best I could, um, but basically says that you ran into a brick wall of, of lack of real cooperation from the other side uh, that essentially mitigated any real success. Um, I know th there's more and we'll get into that, but uh, Robert, do you want to get us started in this, uh, your, your reflections and thoughts? Look, I think Governor Evers is a good man, a real public servant who is in it for the right reasons. So you mentioned ego in the presidential race. He's not in it for self-gratification, quite the contrary. And, but I have differences with him both in terms of worldview, in other words, what level of change is actually necessary to create a just society. It doesn't make him right or wrong, it's just a, a difference, right? And then just kind of approach. I just think this. Um, I think that it's hard to understand if he came into the governorship with a realistic assessment of the Republicans and who they are, who the 21st century Republican Party really is, that he wouldn't have anticipated exactly what they did. And as a result, it's hard for me to credit the strategy. In other words, he doesn't seem to have had a strategy on how to back them down, how to embarrass them, how to call them out. I'd, I think you would just run the state budget process in a very different way if you're not going to veto the whole thing. And the one piece of real news in this is, is that he says that he seriously considered vetoing the whole budget, which we thought he should have done uh, and, and advocate for that very strongly. Uh, so that's interesting. That's the big news tidbit that he considered it. But the question is, if you're going to decide not to do that, don't you front load a lot more of the communication, a lot more of the campaigning on the budget? After introducing his budget, he went silent for months and let Joint Finance Committee take rule the roost and then sign the budget with some vetoes. And I do, and so I, I wish maybe he just doesn't feel like he because he has traditional communication handlers. Maybe he feels that way and couldn't say it. I understand if he said it, everyone would be all over it. But I hope he understands that he needs a strategy to deal with the world as it is, which is the modern Republican Party and its domination of the courts and of the lower houses. And it's not okay just to say, I tried. Claire, he tried. Is that is it, is it enough? I mean, uh, is, is Robert accurate or is what's Robert missing? Your thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, I think it would be unfair to say he didn't try. I think it's a matter of measure or a matter of degree. So I think, yes, he tried. He put Badger Care expansion, for example, in the budget. Um, what I would like to see more of is um, that you keep trying. Um, so, so they. <laughs> <laughs> That's a modest <laughs> answer. If at first you don't succeed, then then <laughs> and then you just go, oh well, no. Um, Clarify exactly where that would have played out differently. Because <laughs> I, I have my thoughts when I hear that, but yeah, your yeah, right. So I so I'll say it's a new year, and you know one of my New Year's resolutions is to be more more gracious um, because 2020 I think is going to be a really stressful time for all of us, and I need to at least start the year. <laughs> <laughs> in a place of grac graciousness, right? Um, so I would say, for example, when the, um, so Robert had one um, example, right? So, um, you know, he, he introduced the budget um, and, and I would have um, maybe liked to see um, some more sort of strong and sustained advocacy around um, his, to use their term, people's budget um, during all the JFC hearings when it became clear that they were 
you know, taking everything good out of it. Um, Another example would be after um, the budget was adopted um, and the governor um, and then Democratic Rep Daniel Reamer and Democratic um, Senator uh, John Urbanbach introduced uh, legislation to do badger care expansion outside of the budget. Um, you know, there was a big push to get it introduced, and then um, just sort of nothing has happened since then. And granted, I didn't expect that the legislature would actually move on this legislation, um, but it would have been nice to not immediately move away from it and move on to other issues because I, I want to keep that in the in the public's eye. So, so that would be one example. Um, but you know, there are other things that we've talked about before on Battleground Wisconsin. So things like, um, you know, so in in this article, for example, it mentions several times that voters care about health care. Um, he says, you know, when I was traveling the state, I heard about economic growth, I heard about education, I heard about potholes, and I heard about health care. Um, and that's mentioned several times in this article. Um, and yet there were lots of health care-related things that we tried to get traction on that we couldn't get a lot of traction on. So um, ACA protections at the state level would be another example. I'll pause. It yep. looked like and you're going to say something. Look, I would just, I agree entirely. And I would just, one way to view this is, is that one of the pres the governor's major powers is the bully pulpit. Okay. And it's not just, if you reduce the governorship just to its official powers, they're very limited in legislation, right? He can't generate legislation, right? He only can sign or not sign legislation or do a partial veto. It's very weak. What's made governors stronger in the 20th century, Robert La Follette pioneered this, and what made presidents stronger, starting with Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, literally was to use their unique access to public opinion. The public has no idea who Robin Voss and Scott Fitzgerald are. If you look at the Marquette poll, people still hardly half know the, who they half are. Half of the likely voters don't know who they are. Yeah. So the governor can speak to the public and can frame up issues, and especially issues people vote on. And the problem with asking for a special session on gun safety but not, say, on health care, is, is that health care is the top voting issue. was by 25 points. People, unfortunately, are not v voting people out on gun safety. They should, but they're not. Can, can, can I, I got to follow up on that because, to me, that is where the yeah. strategic flaw was. You brought up the yeah. strategy. Okay, why in the, in the areas where you don't have leverage, the guns where you call the special session, where you have no leverage on them. They could do exactly what they did, gavel you down. The one area he had leverage and they had to deal with him, the budget, he just, I mean, I know he made some, some line items and stuff, but that is where he could have literally said, nope, we're not doing this until we get Badger Care, or a couple, like highlight two of the three most politically popular, the education funding, which he ended up putting some money back in, but really drive a public, this is the bully pulpit, but actually the bully pulpit with legislative muscle. They cannot pass the budget without Evers. So I would have liked to have seen him use the actual budget process, the biggest thing we do, better. I just felt it was strategically, and he got off such a great start with the people's budget and going around and framing it up great, but then the actual power, exercising of political power, I thought just wasn't there, and I'd love to see that. I do, before we go, I do want to point out one thing that I want to give Evers tremendous amount of credit for, mm -hmm. um, and I think is really worth reading about, and it's, this, and it's under a section in here called A Bunch of Old White Guys, and I just like look this is what is amazing about Tony Evers and we all 
should be more humble and, and like him is he basically talks about how his biggest weakness is that he grew up in a very dominantly white area. And this quote is very powerful, and I actually think it's one of the strengths of why Tony Evers is a popular governor. There's something uh, internal in my life that tells me that diversity is a really important thing. I was raised in a non-diverse env environment, and I see how this does not help me, frankly, as an adult. And just to say that is very powerful, to admit that like his biggest weaknesses are the fact that he lacks that diversity and it it has hurt him I think politically and just in other areas and for him to talk about that um, in a very candid way and talk about that that is a powerful thing that he and he can continue to do regardless of what the Republicans do um, so anyways I just thought that that was worth pointing out uh, that that was an excellent part and why I think it's worth reading if you uh, don't get a chance to Claire yeah I'll add one more thing so that we end on a positive note um, here is that um, you know in the spirit of, of trying to be uh, you know gracious in the new year um, I, I think it's worth giving credit where credit is due and taking responsibility where responsibility is due. Um, and I firmly believe that to make um, positive change and progressive change, we need good people who care on the inside, um, you know, trying their best. And you need good people on the outside pressuring um, elected officials and policymakers to, to do good work and to be better. Um, and so... You know, I, I am grateful that in Tony Evers we have somebody who uh, does actually care about the community, and um, I think that I'm uh, we are as an organization and um, as progressives on the outside of these institutions are going to have to really step up our game in 2020 to hold our elected officials responsible for prioritizing the issues we care about, whether it's health care or fair maps or um, reversing the effects of climate change. Uh, so that is my that is my call to all of us in in 2020 um, is to be to be grateful for for people um, who who serve us um, and then to push them and hold them accountable to be uh, even better than they were in 2019. Robert you get the final word here on our first I'll show. I'll be positive as Claire wants. I'll say that <laughs> Robert, Robert. remember FDR famously told his very progressive uh, labor secretary Francis Perkins uh, you need to organize to make me do it and so even you know, a president with a huge progressive reputation had to be forced by the outside, by people, organized people outside government to get them to do it. And so we have a role in, in making Governor Evers a better governor. We can't just blame it on him. He is trying his best, and he's a good man. And with that, we have to wrap up this year's first edition of the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, I want to remind everybody, 2020, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. And that is a both, uh, both electorally and that we have critical elections, but politically we need to be out moving and talking about these critical issues that the elect elect electorate cares about. And we hope you join us in that fight. And with that, we'll wrap it up. We want to thank our producer, Brian Wilder, who makes this podcast happen every week. We'll see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.